Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast may contain strong language and matter of an aggressively artistic nature. Bringing you insightful interviews from industry insiders across the arts. This is Dark Unicorn in Conversation. Hello, and welcome again to another edition of Dark Unicorn in Conversation. My guest today is a proud patron of the arts, supporting live theatre across London and beyond, and has been a fantastic supporter to Dark Unicorn Productions since our inception. Her status as a proud Londoner and Europhile as well belie her origins in New York City and her education in political science at the prestigious George Washington University in DC. But her patronage of creativity is as nothing compared to her proximity to the white heat of world events in 35 years with ABC News, mostly as a senior operations producer and deputy bureau chief in locations as diverse as South Africa, Rome, Hong Kong, Washington DC, and of course, her beloved London. Her name is Robin Weiner, and we started by talking about her formative years. Robin, tell us about your, your early life. Did you grow up in an environment for, for good journalism and or the arts? My or? early life. I grew up in the Bronx in New York City. I grew up, I was the youngest of three children. We, at the living room table, we always talked about, I, sh- I shouldn't say dining room table, we always talked about current affairs, politics, what was going on in the world how we saw it. So I was always very aware of what was going on, but I never thought about being a journalist. Right. Well, that's interesting. I wanted to be a baseball player. <laughs> so a slight step then in a, in a different direction when you end up going to George Washington University to study political science. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, no, no, no. That's, that's fine. Um, Please carry on. I was, I was just going to... It was to... political science because I was interested in all that. I still never thought about journalism. Hmm. And I went to GW during the Vietnam War years. So did a lot of demonstrations every year. Every, well, every year. Twice a year, we would have all these kids come from different universities, sleep on our floors, and then 500,000 of us would go either march on the Capitol or march on the Pentagon. That was our duty. 
Well, indeed. Um, I mean, I was just when I was looking at it, of course, you always take a, a brief look at the, the other alumni, I see it as educated women, probably who represent the two different ends of the US political spectrum at the moment and the forms of Elizabeth Warren and Kellyanne Conway, both GW graduates. <laughs> um, I was going to ask whether there was a moment of that period where you felt politics was going to form a major part of your life, but clearly it was. It was actively forming. No, but I still never thought about journalism. I fell no. into it. I never, and thinking about it afterwards, after I actually did it, I thought, of course, of course, this is what I should do. Of course, this is who I am. Mm. But I guess if you fall into it and you don't think about it, you do a better job of getting the job, if, you know, if, if that makes any sense. And where did, you, where did you start? Where did you make your start as a journalist? I was looking for a job. I was a paralegal out of a job looking. I had been working for a black law firm and that was just temporary. And I was looking for a job and I called a friend one day. I thought I would work on Capitol Hill. And when I went there, they asked me to take a typing test. And I can't touch type because I refuse to learn. So that went out the window. I called a friend one day and said, let's meet for lunch. And she said, you know, there's a job as Frank Reynolds' secretary. Frank Reynolds had been the anchor at ABC News, American television. I said, well, I don't really, I don't type. She says, well, it's just a secretary name. It's a researcher. Went in the next day, talked to Frank, and then they came to me and they said, the same day, they put down a paragraph and they said, type it and give it back to us when you're done. So about an hour later, with my hunt and peck, I gave it back, got the job, and started the next week. And that was 1975. There you stayed for 35, 35 years. 35 years. Was there uh, an early story that you worked on that particularly stood out for you? Hmm. I'd have to remember there was, uh, we did politics very early. And so I remember, <laughs> I remember covering the Republican convention. And as my family were Democrats, it was a place that I was not, I was not used to being with a lot of Republicans. And so I think the conventions and getting right into the presidential, and that was when Ronald Reagan took on Gerald Ford and Reagan lost. But I remember going there and when I went with Frank, we went, we flew. A limo would pick me up at my apartment, take me to the airport. Then Frank and I would fly. Then they would, a limo would pick us up. So I thought that was the way everybody worked. I thought, this is great. I'm going to do this all the time. <laughs> one one really stood out is uh, the first presidential debate that had restarted when Gerald Ford and um, Jimmy Carter, and I was Frank's researcher, and we did that in, God, 76. So I'm trying to think of all the different things I did in my mind is like going, covering the space shuttle flights, being mm -hmm. there when the space shuttle took off in Florida and then flying to California and being there when it landed. 
was a pretty amazing thing and hanging out with the astronauts. You were in DC for um, until 1986, is that right? Yeah, yep. um, which was covered the latter four years, as you said, through Carter into the mid Reagan period, it was a period of intense reshaping of the political um, settlement in the US, massive lurch to the right latterly. How was it to be at the heart of that sort of level of turbulence? I suppose it doesn't seem like turbulence compared to now, but yeah. It doesn't feel like turbulence. It didn't feel like turbulence. It felt like a political earthquake because I had worked, I, I became an off-air reporter. I still worked for Frank and did big events for him, but I worked up at Capitol Hill in the Senate. And the Senate went Republican with all these Republicans who came in on the Reagan wave. And I thought they were all really right-wing nut jobs. But as a journalist, you learn you do not give your political opinions. You talk to everybody. You are the same with everyone. You ask as softball or hardball questions. And that was what was instilled in me. And you do your homework. You know exactly what you're doing, who you're speaking to, and what you're speaking about. Um, you've mentioned the that that convention where Ford was taken on by Reagan and lost. Um, this is also. Have you been? Have you watched Mrs. America, the series, which of course covers? I up can't. You can't. I can't. I can't. Because <laughs> I lived the whole Phyllis Schlafly thing. It was real to me. Mm. And as much as I love Kate Blanchett, I can't relive it. Yeah. I can't watch her do it. I can't watch anybody. I, it, it was so visceral for me mm. as a woman trying to make a change, women trying to make a change, women trying to be heard, be seen, be thought of as important. And then this woman comes along and was the antithesis of everything I believed. It's, yes, well, I, I can well imagine. I mean, it's, she does a magnificent job with it as an artistic endeavor, but I would not want to have been a woman living through that and being told my place by Phyllis Schlafly, good grief. Um, looking back to sort of the chronology, you, you moved from DC to Rome in 86 and, and among other more Eurocentric areas covered the Vatican. Um, which has always had this very sort of strange dichotomy of leading an incredibly public-facing global organisation, but also being one of the most sort of secretive and um, uh, private regimes in terms of its own affairs. You've come in after the big financial scandals of the early 80s, but at a time when John Paul II is still very much at the height of his rather conservative yes. power. How was it as an institution to cover in that period? I mean, is it something well, you first can... of all, as a woman who grew up, I'm Jewish. <laughs> I grew up in a Jewish, not religious at all. We never went to synagogue or anything. But all of a sudden, I'm thrust in the Vatican. And I remember one of the first things we had to cover every Wednesday audience and every Sunday and every Sunday event. So I went to more masses. <laughs> Now you should be familiar with that, Patty. Going. Well, uh, yes, indeed. Although you know, I was also brought up in a Catholic household, but yes, we did go to a lot of masses because my father did a lot of ecumenical work. Yeah, um, yeah it's it's uh, 
if you're on the outside of it, it's it's incredibly beautiful and theatrical to watch, but it, it also, you feel very much on the outside of it. They were really, I mean, the Vatican is like huge. And they had so much power and control at that point. And John Paul II had already survived the assassination attempt. So he was beyond a god. He was untouchable. And everything he did as ABC News, everything the Pope did was covered. So I did go on some great trips, some great trips to Africa mm. to see, to see. And he really was very, he loved it. And the people loved him. I mean, it was really an amazing thing to watch. The pomp and circumstance of the Vatican, after a couple of masses, I was, I was over it. I, it, 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 I saw it. They went on for hours, and I thought St. Peter's was incredible. I got to see some things that were amazing, but then I wanted to do other things, and luckily I was able to. Well, he, um, yeah, I mean, he was quite a character, John Paul II. Of course, it's, it's it, you know, when you first read his biography and realize that actually he did start out as an actor, you can exactly see where he took it, <laughs> took it to next. Um, he, um, it, it was, again, I'll probably cut this out, but yeah, I mean, I grew up in a period where he, because he had come to Ireland, I, I was born after he had come to Ireland. And yeah. so there were huge numbers of households in Ireland at the time who had this triptych over the mantelpiece. Yeah. And it was the sacred heart in the middle and either side of it was John Paul II and JFK. <laughs> they were the Holy Trinity. Yeah. Um, the, uh, um, was your period there, I mean, uh, certainly I was not aware of the sort of emergence of some of the, the abuse scandals that uh, came out beyond the financial abuse scandals at that period, but was there a sort of bubbling undercurrent? There were ones in the states that we heard of, that we knew about, and we couldn't get any traction on it. You had heard about they paid off some, you know, some places. They paid off some some people, and it did bubble, but could not get any traction on it. It really didn't. Mm -mm. Took a long time to break. In terms of other forms of conflict. Um, war has featured very heavily in, in your journalistic career from the first Gulf War, the Yugoslavian conflict, Somalia. Um, perhaps you care to tell us some of your abiding memories of your work in conflict zones, but, but beyond being able to stay alive to report what's going on, what, what do you think are the most important tools for a correspondent in a war zone to have at their disposal? Well, number one, I would, all right, before that, Remember the Edwin Starr song, War, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And I can tell you, all the ones I, what is it good for? Nothing. But we had a mission. I would call it a mission. You know, you felt you needed to tell people what was going on in the world. So the first thing, you had a team of people, you had to trust them with your life. Camera person, sound person, I was the producer correspondent and editor, and we then we had local fixers 
who we really did trust with our life, who knew what was going on in the place. So you have, you have a team, you trust them. You don't try to be a cowboy. I, you know, we call them cowboys. We never call them cowgirls. Don't take any unnecessary, you know, any anything unnecessary. Don't try to be a hero or heroine. Don't go out. Don't put yourself in any unnecessary danger. There's danger enough. And there were people, I have friends who died. I have a number of friends who died in various conflicts, not trying to be cowboys, but they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Did you have any close calls yourself during that period? We were shot at, we were shot at, if, you know, yes, I've been shot at, snipers. I mean, not someone standing in front of me. Sniper, which is, you have no idea where it's coming from. So, yeah, there's a lot. And it's interesting because British television can put on a lot more, has a higher tolerance level than American television. So we couldn't put on anything. It was really not frustrating. Yes, frustrating, but saw some horrific things. Was that a hangover from Vietnam, really? Because seems like quite a lot that was broadcast during that period. Well, we couldn't, I mean, not only could we not show nudity as you can go into a brothel and we made everybody put on clothes. That was <laughs> interesting. But um, you couldn't show, you really couldn't show dead people unless from a, from a far, from a far, you know, a wide shot, you couldn't show anything close. Um. Moving on from that period, you go to South Africa in 94 to cover the first democratic elections post-apartheid and then return to the US and get sent to cover OJ Simpson. <laughs> I was living, I, working, working in Eastern Europe, as long as I did, I felt I needed a break. And my, the last thing I had done was Albania. And that was, that was pretty grim in the early 90s. That was pretty grim. So I thought, all right, I'll go to LA for a few years. That'll be fine. And as soon as I got there, I realized, boy, have I made a mistake. So I was trying to get out of there and do something else. So they let me go. I, I'd rather go to war zones. They let me go to Somalia. They let me go to Sarajevo. I did that. Mm. And then they said, we'd like you to go live in South Africa for seven months to cover the first election. And I had been to South Africa a number of times during apartheid. So the idea to cover an election for the first time was, I just, I couldn't believe it. So I had an apartment, drove to work every day and in Joburg, did some traveling around on stories, but in South Africa, but covered that. And that was one of my favorite things. Mm, well, an astonishing period to be covering. It was. And meeting, meeting Madiba and being you know, with all these people and meeting all these amazing, amazing people who persevered. You know, you always think, could I do the same thing? What if, what if I were in that position? I don't know. No. They really. Seeing, I mean, I remember going to South Africa to deliver a lecture at a conference uh, 13 years ago now and being struck by the sheer scale of the country when I went mm. there, first of all, and being present to see a country that huge completely reinventing itself as it should have been. <laughs> um, 
what a what a, an amazing thing that must be. And then, having been to what, of course, is in that case a very important act of of public theatre as well as as public policy, then going back into a what was basically a media circus <laughs> in a courtroom. I knew. I knew as soon as I went back to LA, I knew that I was going to be the producer for that. I never saw the chase because I was living in South Africa at the time. I never saw that. I never saw anything. And I got back to, I got back to LA and I knew it was going to be me. And it was 14 months of it. 14 14 months months. of doing that stupid. Obviously a lot of sort of set piece stuff in there. Um, uh, a certain amount of um, machinating going on, um, but the um, presumably long periods of incredibly dull process to cover as well. Yes. Mm. Yes. I had the funny, I'll tell you, I went, when I got back, there was some cocktail party that I had to go to, an ABC in Thing, and I met the judge, who was Judge Ito at the point, and, I, and I, I was introduced to him and I said, you know, I didn't live here when the, when the chase happened or anything like that. I don't know anything about it. He said, you'd be a great juror. <laughs> there were periods of, of great, yes, boredom, but living in LA, the show is on New York time. So the show was on at 6.30 in the evening, New York time. It was 3.30 in the afternoon, our time, and the trial was still going on. Mm. So we had to do a piece while the trial was still going on and then update it three times for all the different time zones. So I don't know if I told you this, but the sh- so the show's on at 3.30 LA time, and at 3.25, O.J. Simpson tried on the glove and it didn't fit. So we threw the entire piece up in the air and had to just bang something together. Really, I remember when he held the thing up and the glove was like halfway down. I thought, oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh, the pressure. um... But, you know, it is, but it's not the same as Making air is really stressful. Making air with, you have a minute 30 piece. It can't be a minute 32. It has to be a minute 30. And making air is a stressful thing, but you kind of get into a rhythm of it and you know how to do it. And that's why I knew when I went back to LA that I was going to be the OJ Simpson producer because I'm very good at at that. Mm. I am. Yes, it's oh gosh, not a job I would have envied you. Longest I ever covered was a, a two month, two month trial at the old. I'll tell you something else I had to cover. Oh, I don't know. Are you allowed? Are we allowed to say anything? I had to cover the story on Michael Jackson's penis. Oh, you can talk about that if you wish. Yes, Michael Jackson's penis. Mm. Yeah, I had to do that too. <laughs> when they, when they, when they raided Neverland. Yeah, and they made him. You know, he had had all these things about him. Young boys had said, and they said, how do you, you know, how do you know it was Michael Jackson? And they had talked about, he had vitiligo. Mm. So, 
So when they raided Neverland, they made him pull down his pants. And um, we had to do a story on it, but of course you can't talk about any of that. Uh, but the story was about Michael Jackson's penis. So, you know, <laughs> that's, that's low down in stories I would put on my CV. But I can tell you. Yeah. And then um, later on, I had people wanting to talk, to ask me questions about it. And I said, I, you know, I did it. I'm done. I don't remember anything. So. Who could blame you? Um, of course, also during the period you were in LA, stepping, stepping back slightly, but but looking forward to, to now, um, you were there during the 1992 um, riots, um, the Rodney King case. Is there is is this always going to be the 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 history of the U.S. that repeats itself? Yes, yes, I think so. I remember. Yes, <laughs> I don't know how to. I don't know how to. You know, make that. Yeah. yeah, I remember going. We had to go to a gun store. And and do the because there was a run on guns after the after the riot, and I remember standing there and I was frozen. I stood in the corner. I couldn't move, watching people buy guns, watching men buy little pink guns for their girlfriends. And watching, there was this huge gun store in LA. Mm -hmm. And now you know there are more guns than there are people in America. Yeah. And there's a run on guns now. More people are buying guns. It's like, what's that about? So race, racism, we're not over it yet. And we're not even close. And it's resurfaced in a particularly ugly way now. That and is being given license from on high. Yes. Um, what will it take to make, do you th is there something you could see happening that would make a positive step forward? Well, first of all, we have to get rid of the Joker in the White House. Yeah. The fraud, the mm. fraud in the White House. I don't think uh, they'll never, I don't think they'll ever get rid of guns. Well, they won't get rid of guns. Mm. What do I think? I don't know. I think there will be pockets of places that will all of a sudden say, wow, I get it. I get it. And that's what we need. I'm now reading the biography of uh, the new biography that came out of John Lewis, who is a hero of mine. And, you know, to, he was beaten, I think, over 60 times, talked about 60 times. And I think people now are, and he believed, and he believed in peaceful protests. I think people now are less. What word am I looking for, Patty? Inclined towards. <laughs> well, not less inclined, but they have less patience yeah. for that. Mm. They want to kind of speed the process up. It's it's, as the Arabs say, "Khalas," enough. Mm. It's enough. And certainly, I you know I don't think any reasonable-minded individual could um, deny the attraction of that approach after so long and after a, a heavily state-sanctioned backlash against um, people of colour. Um, looking to another area that that is experiencing some turbulence at the moment. Um, uh, 
1997 in, in your career I had two major events for you to cover the ha handing over of Hong Kong um, and then very shortly thereafter the, the death of Diana. Uh, looking at Hong Kong first, did it, did it seem inevitable at the time that we would end up seeing the scenes that are playing out today? Or are you surprised it's taken so long or surprised it's happened at all? You know, I had never been, it was my first time in Hong Kong, and I felt it was very British, but yet it was very Asian. It's really a, an interesting mix of the two. I mean, they're really, have you been to Hong Kong? No, I've never been to Hong Kong, no. It was parts of it, I mean, it's so British. I mean, really, very, the clubs and the and the various places, and then you could, go three, three streets away and it's, you're in Asia. Mm. And there were no mainland Chinese then, none, none. Yes. And Cantonese was only spoken, no mainlanders because the mainlanders had no money at that point. So all the shops, all the really, and there were, you know, the big shops frequented by either Brits or tourists or Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese. And the mainlanders were thought of as poor and nobody wanted them there. Mm. And I remember uh, monitoring video the night, the actual night of the handover and looking up and they were all these Chinese troops massed on the border. I said, look, and I had to tell the producers in charge, look at that. And they went, oh my God. And then the next day, everything went on just as normal. So, and Chris Patton cried. Yeah, Chris Patton cried, big deal. Chris Patton cried, you know, having to give it over. But, and then in the course of how many years, all, uh, I have a friend who is Hong Kong Chinese. She lives in the States. She goes back because her family lives there. She said, the only ones who have money now are the mainlanders wow. in Hong Kong. And that's all you see are mainlanders everywhere. And a lot of people now speak Mandarin. Gosh. Mandarin is kind of, and it's changed a lot. And I think, but so is China, hasn't it? Yes. In yes. 23 years. Yeah. Very different place. And then returning and dealing with the <laughs> coverage of Diana. I mean, a Tremendous spectacle. Is it, could anything have prepared you for the scale of the public outpouring that there was at that? No. No, it'll, no. Mm. I mean, wasn't everybody shocked? I mean, wasn't everybody really gobsmacked at the whole thing that... No. I don't think I went home for about a week when it happened. I mean, we just were round the clock round the clock, round the clock, round the clock. And it was, because of, because of the kind of place Britain is, because of the reserve of the, of the I should say of the English, mm. because I don't think the Irish are reserved or, <laughs> or the Scots. Or, so the reserve of the English, I think hit everybody. Uh, I think everyone was surprised. The um, yes, and and it is nevertheless, no matter um, 
who it is. It is it is a death which is processed in much the same way as any other in terms of the logistics of it. And so there's presumably huge quantities of time passed without much really to report. I mean, I can remember the the poor wretched anchors on on ITN the day that that uh, that the story broke. You know, desperately trying to fill these <laughs> yawning hours of where they were had to stay on the air. But well, you know what you do? You go down to Kensington Palace and you talk to people who are putting flowers down. And then you pontificate for a long time. <laughs> right? You have two anchors talking to each other about, well, what is this? Ooh, and this. So there's a lot of pontificating and a lot of talking to very, you know, people were really broken up mm. about it. But I know that we all came into work drunk that day, that morning, because there was a going away party for someone and everybody got shit-faced. I mean, shit-faced. <laughs> and then we got a call about 2.30 in the morning. There's been an accident coming to work. Everybody came in drunk. And it's amazing, but adrenaline kicks in and then, you're, and then nobody's drunk anymore. You uh, just get right to work. Um, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. Yeah. It, was, it was, yeah. Um, you now cover sport. You said at the start you you um, wanted to be a baseball player as a as as a youngster. Has sport always played a big part in your life? My family was really into it. Yes, we went to baseball games as a family. Lived in the Bronx, not far from Yankee Stadium. So baseball was always big, and football. My yeah, my family was really into it. Not that big players, but big watchers and big fans. Mm. And so it's funny. I knew I, knew I wasn't going to do news anymore. Although I did a few. You know, I just realized the other day that it was five years since Charlie Hebdo yes. happened. And I had gone to, I had worked for ABC. They had called me. So I spent a week in Paris when that happened. That was pretty, I thought it was longer than five years ago. Yes, it feels to me. I remember it happening. I was working as a media relations advisor for the police service at the time, and I remember us dealing with the, the fallout of it in terms of the um, changes in the in the terror alert level and what the police here were planning on doing and blah blah blah. Um, how how is it covering something where basically? what the journalist covers suddenly appears on its own doorstep. I mean, you, I mean, what? in terms of when suddenly the journalist is the target or journalists are the target, how much can you let it affect you if as the person you who's covering you it? You can't. You can't. I mean, Charlie Hebdo journalists were the target when they had put out the, when, you know, when they had put out the covers and that. But I know that we were targets in Romania. They knew which hotel we were staying in, so snipers would 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 snipe to the journalist hotel. In in Croatia and in Serbia, they knew because you had to have journalists on the side of your car of you know your your armored personnel carrier. So journalists, I've gone through a lot of my career where journalists have been targeted in certain ways. 
You mentioned Romania. Was that the during the was that the nineteen eighty nine rebellion? Was it? The, the oh yes, I was there from the beginning. Drove across Bulgaria on Christmas Day and came into Romania on the day that the Ceausescu's were shot. Wow. Yeah. They, they they put him up against the wall and they shot him. Yeah. I've seen the footage. I mean, it was fairly um, unceremonious and unsentimental. <laughs> um, we just hopscotch from one fall, well, from one country falling to another. In '89, it was it was it was pretty cool. What a time that must have been. Yeah, we had flown from from Prague. You retired from ABC in 2010. And now uh, do your own thing in terms of consultancy and reportage as necessary. But theatre plays a big part in your life. I know both as a theatre goer and as a, as a supporter of, of theatre and theatre companies, including Dark Unicorn, for which eternal thanks. Um, what is it about theatre that makes it so important to you? Okay, a few things. I just watched a performance from the old Vic of one of my favorites, Andrew Scott, mm. in this in play called Three Kings, mm. which was theater to me is brilliant. Love it more than movies because it's immediate and what you see is what you get. And I love being, I love watching them. I, I'm just, I'm just, reliving my my recent one which was Thursday with Andrew Scott and then he spoke afterwards about what energy the audience gives the performer what energy they get from them and so how strange it is to be in a theater where there's nobody there and you're playing to he says now I'm playing to my camera operator so as you are you're playing to your camera operator, or if there's not one, the camera. Mm. And theater is, I miss theater more than anything else during this pandemic. How have you coped without, without it? Have you, have you been watching sort of every, every live streamed play or, no. or recorded? No, I've watched a few national theater things. I don't, tend to want to re-watch things. So I didn't, I go to the National Theatre a lot, so I've seen a lot of those things. How have I been coping? Reading and music have mm. pretty much filled it for me as much as possible, but I can't wait to get back to the theatre. You've, you've, you've watched a huge amount of material, um, but who is your favorite actor? Hands down, Paul Newman. Paul Newman. Paul Newman. I have pictures of him around my flat. It's I believe I have seen some of the pictures in your flat of Paul Newman. I used to have a picture of him on my ceiling when I was a kid. <laughs> so when I woke up in the morning, the first thing I would gaze at was Paul Newman. <laughs> and as an actor, how do you rate his sources? How do I rate his, his his source range, Newman's own? I think he was, you know, I I love comedy and so so. I've seen him in comedy, but I just think he was a great. I just thought he was a great actor, mm. and he was also he was very involved in social issues. Yeah. And I remember I had to interview him. Not in you know there was a press conference, 
and I asked him a question. I've never been so nervous in my life. Really? <laughs> yes. I could ask presidents questions. I could ask anybody. I had no, I have no problem talking to anyone. I was so scared. I was so nervous. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah. But. Uh, and he, he was so consistent right up until the last. Uh, was that was his last thing, Road to Perdition? I remember going to see Road to Perdition in the cinema and he played the old. Well, he also did those, those um, Richard Russo, Nobody's Fool, and mm. was, I think he was great. Did he have maybe, did he have the most amazing range in the world? No. Funny thing is, did you read that, the article about Jane Fonda recently in the New No, York? I didn't. Where, where was that? I'll send, you, I'll send you a copy, and they asked her about certain people, and you know, you know, Maureen Dow, truth or fiction, you know, did you do this? Did you do that? And they said, you know, sleeping with someone, did you sleep with someone? She says, no, I didn't. But the one person I really wanted to sleep with, but I didn't, was Marvin Gaye. <laughs> and then they said, and how was, and what about Marlon Brando? And she said, disappointing. <laughs> well, see, that's, that's, that's method actors for you. They need far too long to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait. So, who's, who's your favorite actor? Who's my favorite actor? Um, I sort of alters quite a lot. There were, I love character actors. I love watching character actors and people like. It depends, really. I suppose on the genre. Overall, I think because of his voice and his command of of just of theatre, even if it was on film, I, was John Gielgud, who I just loved. Yeah. Did you ever see him on stage? I never saw him live on stage. I wish no. I could have seen oh, him. Me too. He, um, and he had such a, I mean, when you read about him then afterwards, he had an incredibly business-like approach to everything. There was, you know, he, he, you know, was very much of the lonely lines and don't bump into the furniture school of acting. And, oh. oh. Um, but plus, I mean, his just his yes, his the his the way he carried himself, his voice was second to none, really. And he, I always would, I would far rather, I would rather watch 10 John Gielgud performances than one Laurence Olivier because, particularly, Laurence Olivier could, I would have adored to have seen him on stage, yeah, but on film, of course, he couldn't drop the theatricality, and so he just comes across as complete ham. Um, but Gilgood managed to, he knew what he was doing and it just, it always amuses me that of all the performances he gave, the one, the time he got the Oscar was for Arthur. Yes, which, uh, Which yeah. was a, a sublime performance, um, but very much tongue-in-cheek. Um, what future would you like to see emerge from the current bizarreness for both the arts and indeed for journalism? What future? I'd like to see the current government leave. I'd like them kicked out on their asses. I think that would help everyone. Both sides of the Atlantic we're talking here. Both sides of the Atlantic and a few other places. <laughs> a few other places. I think the way this has been handled has been horrible. Has been, you know, it's not just, it's not just the arts and it's not just journalism. It's, it's, you know what story has really gotten to me recently is the Marcus Rashford story and child poverty. 
And then, you know, sports figures, you know, you had asked me about doing sport now. Sports figures can play a very big part in, the, in, in what happens socially in the, in, and politically in, in countries, especially here in the States, because that's what I know the best. And it's really interesting to see them taking a front row and deciding, you know what? I don't just play sport. I have a voice and people listen to me and I'm going to use it. And so I think, I think that is really important. I think journalism, I, it's interesting because I asked a friend of mine who's a journalist, why don't you do the story? And she said, they're doing it as a sports story. I said, but it's not a sports story. So things need to be covered differently. Child poverty in this country is, and the fact that a 22 year old is taking the lead in this is, is a story for all of us. Exactly, and the fact that he has had to drag the government. Drag them. In, yeah. In a state of embarrassment in order for them to do anything. The latest thing was some Yahoo MP saying, it's not the government's part to feed children, it's parents' part yeah, to feed. That's all right. He said, well, you know, parents do want to feed their children, you moron. But <laughs> I just find it astounding. And I think that's where journalists can, can, can play a part. They don't, want to take a, they don't want to take a position, but they have to. This is a story that needs to be told, and it's not a sports story. It is a story. It's a social story. Mm. And just like sports people can make a difference in what the world does, so can culture, and so can the arts. We have voices, you have a voice, use it. Don't just say, well, I I'm not political and I really don't wanna do that. People listen to you. People listen to actors and, and directors and, 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 and all this, production people. Use your voice for good, use your voice for change. How then have you um, felt about the, the um, statements emerging from the new incoming director general of the BBC who has said that he, he wants to see more pro-government <laughs> comedy? <laughs> well, and, and as someone said, right-wing people are not funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny. And then someone else said, was it, she said, I'd rather be insulted than bored. And I find it amazing that, this, that the, the new director general is a man. Are all, all there are are white men available? I find that we were talking about this other day, but my friends and I, the BBC is the greatest example of soft power that this country has. And to, and to threaten the BBC, threaten to pull funding and everything, is about one of, well, I, it's not the dumbest thing this, this government can do because the list is quite long, but it's really a stupid thing because the BBC is one of the best ambassadors for Great Britain that they can have. I don't find the BBC left wing. I find the BBC is so timid well, yes, <laughs> the editorial code is, something, but I think the editorial code is its best and worst asset insofar as um, 
because they are so restricted in terms of balance, it means that it's Schrodinger's broadcaster, I always say about it, because it's simultaneously right-wing and left-wing, according to however you're viewing it, and you won't know which it is until you open it. I'm timid. I, I, yeah. I, I do. I find it hedging, at least... I mean, I do. I love the BBC. Yeah. I mean, I could listen to Radio 4. Oh, yeah. Radio 4 is a treasure, an absolute national treasure, and more people should listen to it, but... What do you still want to achieve that you haven't managed to yet? I'd like to be about three inches taller. <laughs> I don't know how I could do that. I'd like to see a better world. I'd like to see a Democrat in the White House. What I personally want to achieve or what I'd like to see the world achieve. You well, know, what, what would you personally like to achieve? I mean, we can talk to Sarkozy can advise you on the right lifts for the shoes if you want to be three inches taller, but otherwise, what... Uh, I'd like what, to play the piano again. Mm -hmm. I used to play. I'd like to start playing again. What do I want to achieve, Patty? I don't... You know, I want to get through... I've got, I've got about 500 books in my, um, in my living room. One of the things I'd like to achieve is try to read most of them. I, I, every day I learn something new. So during this, I, something new in history, something new in music, some new book that's come out, something in theater that I didn't know. I didn't know that Stanley Kubrick, I don't know why, was from the Bronx. I don't know why I didn't, rem maybe I knew it at one point, but I've learned it again and I'm from the Bronx. There's just, every day is a learning experience. I don't know. I don't know how much you can do from your bed. I guess you can do as much, but I have my garden and every day I learn something new. I've, I've found new music that I didn't know. And I'm pretty good about music. I'm, I'm mainly talking about jazz, people in jazz that I, that I didn't know about or classical or books that I'd never heard of. So for me, personal achievements, theater that I haven't, plays that I didn't know about, mm. personal achievements like that. Um, I have one small section left here, which we've been doing with every guest who's been on, uh, because uh, 2020 has carried off many people, including James Lipton, who fronted Inside the Oh, Actors yes, Studio. the Actors Studio. And he, as you will probably be familiar, ended every interview before he would open up to the floor, ended every interview with the same 10 questions that he asked every guest. And I've been doing the same, I've been using the same 10 questions. What's your favorite word? Today, mellifluous. And your least favorite word? Trump. What turns you on? Good theatre. And off? Bad theatre. What sound or noise do you love? Children laughing. And what sound or noise do you hate? Doors slamming. What's your favourite swear word? Fuck. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? 
Well, I'm too old to be a baseball player and there are no female baseball players. So the other profession, I'd like to be the head of, a, of an NGO and, 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 get, and get them right. And what profession would you absolutely not ever want to do? President of the United States. If, whatever your beliefs may have been in life, if you, when your time comes, you open your eyes and discover that heaven does indeed exist, what would you like to hear said to you on arrival? Trump's in hell. <laughs> Robin, thank you very much indeed for taking the time. You're very welcome, Patty. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to Dark Unicorn in Conversation with Robin Wiener. The show was written, presented, and edited by Paddy Cooper. Theme music by Curtis Batson. Special thanks to the estate of James Lipton. The series has been executive produced on behalf of Dark Unicorn Productions Limited by Eleanor Stapp. COVID-19 presents one of the greatest threats to theatre in living memory. The performing arts need you now more than ever. Please, consider supporting our work by becoming a patron, with packages starting at just £50 per year to be a rainbow unicorn. Just visit darkunicorn.org. Science helps us solve problems, but creativity helps us cope with them. Please don't let the performing arts be another casualty of the pandemic. Thank you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.